You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Cindy Johnson. Welcome. And now here's the host of Lighthearted, Jeremy Dontremont. <laughs> Thanks, Cindy. You know, we've been doing the podcast for what, three years, a little more than three years now, and I, mm. I thought I'd I thought I'd turn the tables this time and let you introduce <laughs> me. So how did it feel? It felt a little funny, but I think I could get used to it. <laughs> this this came from me doing impressions of you, didn't it? Uh, possibly, yeah. <laughs> well, I do, I do like I do like to do uh, impressions of you, as you know. I don't think our, our listeners know, but I I have a few. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to do since we're <laughs> on, the, on the subject? This is this is your chance here. This is my chance to impersonate. Okay. Let's, yeah. Um, Let's give it a try. I have, these are the these are the my go-to impersonations. Let's see yeah. here. Yeah. You are listening to Lighthearted. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Let's listen to that conversation now. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I feel like I'm listening to myself. Can I, can I imitate you? Yes, please. All right. Okay, you say hi, Cindy. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> okay, well, enough enough of that. We could we could go on, but we probably shouldn't. So yes, we All definitely right. could. Yes. Good good job. <laughs> Today is June twenty sixth, twenty twenty two, and this is episode one seventy nine of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll hear a conversation with one of the leading lighthouse preservationists in the country, Mike Vogel. First, has anything interesting happened on the state lighthouse history? Yes, something interesting happened on June 26, 1766, at Sandy Hook Lighthouse in New Jersey. The New York Mercury reported, quote, The lighthouse at Sandy Hook was struck by lightning, and 20 panes of the glass lantern broke to pieces. The chimney and porch belonging to the kitchen was broken down, and some people that were in the house received a little hurt, but are since recovered. Tis said the gust was attended with a heavy shower of hail, unquote. That was only two years after the lighthouse at Sandy Hook was built. Uh, it's the oldest standing lighthouse tower in the country. It survived cannon fire in the American Revolution, as well as the 1766 lightning strike. Uh, some people say you can see the marks of cannonballs in the tower. I couldn't find them when I was there, but I, I believe it. But anyway, the uh, lighthouse is part of the Sandy Hook unit of the Gateway National Recreation Area in Highlands, New Jersey, and it's open for climbing from May through October. So, Cindy, please help me tell our listeners about our guest, Mike Vogel. Sure, Jeremy. Mike Vogel retired as editorial page editor of the Buffalo News in 2011 after a 43-year journalism career that included three decades as a reporter and feature writer. Mike was the organizer and founding president of the Buffalo Lighthouse Association, which began restoration of Buffalo, New York's historic 1833 lighthouse in 1985. Mike's work at the local level soon led to efforts for the National Lighthouse Preservation Movement. After launching and completing the first compilation of surviving American Fresnel lenses, he served on the National Lighthouse Museum Steering Committee and its Site Selection Committee. Mike was elected as the first vice president of the American Lighthouse Coordinating Committee and then was elected to the ALCC presidency. 
The ALCC was instrumental in helping the government develop guidelines for the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act of 2000. As head of the ALCC and the Buffalo Lighthouse Association, Mike partnered with the National Park Service to run a National Lighthouse Lens Conservation Workshop in Buffalo in 2002. He also organized and ran the extensive lighthouse tracks at three National Maritime Heritage Conferences. Mike is also the author or co-author of five books on maritime history, as well as Buffalo and Niagara Falls local history, including America's Crossroads, a definitive history of Buffalo's infamous Canal District. In 2007, the U.S. Lighthouse Society honored Mike with its prestigious F. Ross Holland Award, recognizing his exceptional contributions to lighthouse preservation. And last but far from least, Mike has been president of the U.S. Lighthouse Society since 2020. He and I had crossed paths over the years, but I've gotten to know him more in the last couple of years, with both of us being uh, very involved with the USLHS. It was a real pleasure to sit down with Mike on my recent trip to Buffalo, New York. So let's listen to that conversation now. I am here in beautiful Buffalo, New York, my good friend, Mike Vogel. And it is uh, such a pleasure to be here. Uh, this is uh, this is new to me, the Buffalo main light and, and Buffalo in general. I've only barely seen a little bit of Buffalo once in my life before. So it's just such a treat being here and great uh, talking to you today, Mike. Thanks for doing this. It is my pleasure. And we're actually thrilled to have you with us. Well, Welcome thank you. Welcome to Buffalo. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. The feeling is mutual, really. This is, this is a treat, this whole trip I'm on for a few days here in your part of the world. So, Mike, we're going to cover some ground today, both uh, your uh, long history with the lights here in Buffalo, the Buffalo uh, Lighthouse Association, and also your involvement with the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Of course, you are the president, uh, have been for the last couple of years. We'll talk about that. But let me just uh, to get started, just a, a little bit more about yourself in case people don't know about this. You had a long career in journalism. And uh, it was more than 40 years, I believe, right? A little more than 40 years? Uh, 43. Okay, yeah. And you retired as the editorial page editor for the Buffalo News in 2011. I feel like this is this is your life. Do you this is my life, <laughs> yeah. yes. Um, and uh, so when you uh, you were the editorial page editor at the, near the end of your, towards the end of your career, uh, I think you were a reporter some of the time. and you Reporter, were, yeah. uh, an archaic newspaper job category called Rewrite Man. Okay. Which involved translating into English stuff that other reporters had filed, or taking multiple fields from the f- f- feeds from the field, and you know, large and complex stories, and mm-hmm. crafting them into one news story. Okay. So and feature writing, that sort of thing. A lot of feature writing. I enjoyed that yeah. as much as the hard news or more. I would think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. you must have covered so many different subjects. A ton. Did Journalism ta- is a, is a is a career that's rich in experiences and not so much in financials. <laughs> you have to really. It's a calling. Oh yeah. Just like lighthouse preservation. Of course, of course. Yeah. So yeah, I think you mentioned to me, and the environmental field was something you. Did. I did. I was in the news's environmental reporter for four or five years. I've I've actually circled the Great Lakes twice by car, reporting on environmental issues for the Great Lakes. And uh-huh. And traversed it two or three times on ships. Yeah. So oh, it's been fun. Well, that brings me to a question. Uh, as we just said, you, you've covered a, a lot of different things. Uh, and I'm sure you covered uh, you know, so many interesting stories over the years. Is there maybe just one or two that really stand out? It doesn't have to be lighthouse related. A, a, anything. But. 
Well, I mean, it, it, sort of two different categories. One are the ones that I really enjoyed doing, and the others are the, the large news stories. I, you know, I covered a, the police and fire beats here for five or six years as well, so there's a lot of tragedy in, involved in that kind of thing, and that sticks out. Mm-hmm. But I also did a lot of did a lot of travel. I I, um, I was embedded with an Air Force unit during the first Gulf War. Um, I covered the 50th anniversary of D-Day at Normandy. Mm. Um, wow. Helped recover a captured War of 1812 American flag, a twin to the Star Spangled Banner, actually, from a Scottish castle, and brought it back to Fort Niagara here in in, uh, as part of the coverage of that uh, uh, effort. Uh-huh. I've lived with uh, a Cree family in Canada's far north and done archaeological digs in the Pacific Northwest and a lot of sailing. I've flown yeah. with the Blue Angels, got to pilot some, you know, with, with closer supervision, some military aircraft and yeah. some aerobatic aircraft and wow. five or six tall ships. Mm-hmm. Um, through the course of time, and it's been fun. Yeah, we were out in a boat today, as we're going to talk about going to the, the Buffalo South Side Light, which uh, you have to correct me on the proper name. We'll get to that in a while. But um, uh, you mentioned that you were on the crew in the, the uh, in uh, out of uh, Mystic, Connecticut. The, uh, the Charles Seaport, W. Morgan. The Charles the, W. The Morgan, the old whaling ship, yeah. when it was uh, restored, and they took yeah, it out they sailing. Yeah, they did. The, the museum made a really courageous decision to take her to sea again, mm-hmm. the 38th Voyage. Yeah. The Charles W. Morgan. Yeah. And it really galvanized it. it. It injected new blood, new new enthusiasm into that museum and its staff and yeah. and its mission. Yeah. And really was really good for the museum. It was a courageous move. High risk one in some respects. But I was one of the 38th, voy- 38th Voyagers uh, who were assigned on not so much to do sail handling and stuff, but to experience the, the become part of the crew experience the life we all had different assignments i did a little bit of poetry but my main thing was doing researching an article for the keeper's log mm-hmm. on the use of whale oil which actually whale oil was never used in lighthouses sperm oil was okay there's a difference chemically and and operationally uh, so i researched that and did that article for the log Mm-hmm. And for the museum's own publications. Oh, neat. Okay, I, I didn't realize there was that tie-in. That's that's great. Yeah. But that was, you know, I've done other tall ships as a reporter. Yeah. Including Eagle from mm-hmm. uh, Bermuda to Norfolk wow. for the bicentennial of the or the centennial rather of the Statue mm-hmm. of Liberty. Wow. Doing things you like and getting paid to do it at the same it, time is really it, cool. Absolutely. And speaking of things you love. Uh, although maybe not uh, in this uh, kit, what we're going to move on to here, maybe not getting paid so much for it. But uh, how did you first get interested in lighthouses anyway? I got tricked into it. <laughs> I had done a lot of reporting of Buffalo's waterfront redevelopment mm-hmm. and Buffalo's waterfront history. It's a very rich heritage and history. Yes. And I got a call from the Coast Guard base commander on which the lighthouse stands, the 1833 lighthouse stands. And he told me he wanted me to come down so he could talk to me about the lighthouse. So I thought I was doing a story. And I left that day as the head of an incipient 501c3 designed to restore the lighthouse. He had no budget for it. Uh-huh. It was had structural flaws and cracks, and it was in real danger. Yeah. And he didn't want to see it fall down. The yeah. Coast Guard headquarters didn't want to see it fall down. So they needed a, a sacrificial lamb, and I was it. Mm-hmm. So I put together the 501c3, and that was 1985, and we've been kind of doing it ever since. I tell people I was 
a professional newspaper man for 43 years, and I've been a White House keeper for 37 or 38 now, so I'm a professional anachronism. <laughs> that's my career. I like to think I am, too, so I don't think that's a bad thing. So let's talk about the, the history of the lighthouse, which we were just in a few minutes ago. And it's, it's just a, I think it's one of the more handsome lighthouse towers that around. It really is. It's, oddly um, enough, designed by committee, and it came out well. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the main portion of it was 1833, and they added three more levels in 1857 uh, to raise the light and make room for a fog bell, which didn't work out real well, but they did anyway. Yeah. And uh, and it all came together pretty uh, It did. aesthetically it's, pleasing. Yeah, yeah, it's like it was all planned that way. Yeah. But uh, inside, as I commented on, we were coming down a little while ago, it's a little odd inside the arrangement of the... the uh, the scuttles, as they called them, the, the trap doors and the ladders. Yes. A little unusual. Yeah, 50 stone steps in a, mm -hmm. in a spiral. The the pointy end of those triangles that form the central pillar and the broader bases are embedded in the wall. So mm -hmm. it, it hasn't moved in 189 years. The first lighthouse in Buffalo, Buffalo Harbor was 1818. Is that correct? 1818. Uh, we're actually sitting very close to where that tower stood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was at the end of the point of land that marked the end of Buffalo Creek at the mm -hmm. time. And, uh, you know, it was before uh, a lot of landfill was added out here to create a Coast Guard base. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was lit on November 5th, 1818, and some recent research indicates that was about nine days before Erie, Pennsylvania, Presque Isle. Mm -hmm. uh, which was they were both built under the same contract by the same uh, firm out of Massachusetts and for the same price. It was relatively short at 40 some feet and really obscured quite often by the smoke from the village mm -hmm. because it eddies down. It would have eddied down here. There's not a lot of smoke from fireplaces now. So within a few years, it was outmoded. And those years were crucial ones because 1818 was only seven years before the Erie Canal opened. Yeah. When the canal opened, this became very rapidly a major port, and Buffalo became very rapidly a major city, yes. no longer a, a village. The government had wanted to build a lighthouse here for quite a while, um, and they, they we became a port of entry in 1805. Around 1811, 1810-11, they, they were talking about a lighthouse. But then the War of 1812 occurred, and during that war, Buffalo was burned to the ground by the British, so... Lighthouse construction got delayed. 1821 came and there was this talk of a canal and there was a rivalry between two villages as to which would be the terminus. So the citizens of Buffalo put together a harbor committee and actually built a pier sticking out into the lake to enlarge the harbor and yeah. make it more competitive. Mm -hmm. And uh, they did that. And, and it worked in 1826, a year after the canal opened. The federal government stepped in and straightened and strengthened that pier. But that's the pier that we're repairing today because of recent storms, and it's the one that leads out to our lighthouse. Yeah. So they put the molehead at the end of that pier, and then by 1833 had lit this lighthouse. You know, I, did, I knew that Buffalo was an important port, but I didn't know until uh, lately, when I've been uh, preparing for this really <laughs> and talking to you and everything, uh, that Buffalo was actually the seventh busiest port in the world. For a while, around yeah, uh, third busiest in the United States behind New York and Chicago. Uh huh. And uh, uh, in the early days, Chicago was just a village. 
In fact, an interesting story about the first lighthouse keeper of this lighthouse and the last lighthouse keeper of the 1818 is a guy by the name of William Jones. And mm-hmm. I tended to ignore that for years when I was doing history because, you know, getting into researching someone named Bill Jones is right. not exactly right. an you're, enticing proposition. You're going to run into a thousand. But I came across a reference to him in an obituary in a downstate newspaper from that time period or from later in the 1800s. And as it turns out, he's probably the most successful lighthouse keeper in history because he was the keeper of the 1818 and then the canal opened and he was the first keeper of the 1833. Mm. And his son, Fernando, Fernando is a better name to conjure with. Fernando Jones. Yeah. um, Was his assistant keeper. And he watched and he just noticed this exponential increase in shipping and trade. And he said to himself, there's a future in the Great Lakes here. Mm-hmm. This is something happening here. So he thought about it. He looked at maps and he decided he was going to go to Lake Michigan and put down stakes there. So he went. He and Fernando went to New York City to talk to John Jacob Astor. Yeah. And Astor said, you're absolutely right, except you're thinking of the wrong place. I'm going to build a city called Astoria. And it's now the area of Green Bay. So it didn't become the megalopolis that he expected. Jones didn't think that was right. So he took this tour west to flip things out. He went by canoe and horseback and Indian guide and whatever. He ended up in this little frontier village at the base of Lake Michigan called Fort Dearborn, which had just come through a massacre in the War of 1812, and it was a tiny village. And he said, this is the place. So he pulled up stakes here, and he became the first person to bring outside venture capital into what became the city of Chicago. And there's a whole edition of land he bought and then turned over to Chicago, still called the William Jones edition. Mm. And there's a, a magnet school in downtown Chicago that's named after him because he was wow. the first school superintendent of Chicago. Everybody kind of thinks it was named after William Jones, who was a black activist in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But it's named after this earlier guy. Wow. His son, Fernando, went down the Mississippi for a while, but eventually came back. And he invented the system of real estate abstracts that's still used in real estate transactions today. Hmm. And when Chicago burned, mm-hmm. his abstracts helped recreate all the property records for the city of Chicago. Okay. So these guys had like this phenomenal career yeah. that started in this lighthouse. Wow. I had no idea. <laughs> well, once I got around to researching a William Jones, that's a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> it, it sort of unfolded. Yeah, that is, a, that is amazing. What, what were the, the goods moving around here? What, what were the other factors? that? Well, when the canal opened, it was basically packaged goods and furs still mm-hmm. heading east. Yeah. But that quickly got suborned by bulk cargoes. I mean, early on, packaged things like barrels of eggs from Ohio and that. But the canal also opened a lot of market communities along the canal so farmers could start feeding their goods in. So eventually, within 10 or 15 years, we started seeing bulk cargoes coming in on lake schooners, unloaded here onto canal boats and taken to the East Coast. So what happened in a nutshell was that this river of immigration from New York City and Boston and originally from Montreal flowed through Buffalo. The Erie Canal became the conduit for a river of immigrants They Mm -hmm. settled the heartland of the country, and the stuff they produced, the grain and the lumber products 
and eventually the ore from the Wasabi and the coal mm-hmm. from closer to this end of the lake system all funneled back through Buffalo. Yeah. So you had a river of commerce coming from the west to the east and a river of immigration from the east to the west, and they all changed ships from boats to schooners and steamboats here in Buffalo Harbor. Mm-hmm. So we became a transshipment port, and that's where the wealth was generated. Henry Wells and William Fargo, um, William Joseph Fargo, uh, Fargo was the mayor of Buffalo in the Civil Warriors. They founded their freight forwarding firms on that dock, and there were several of them. Two of them were Wells Fargo and American Express. Right here. Right here, formed on these docks. Yeah. And there was a great deal of wealth, and it generated right across from our lighthouse in the port there. We had a lot of schooners tie up to our pier waiting for their turn. 1860s, we had 68 ships a day clearing or entering the harbor, 67,000 for the shipping season. Wow. And then later on, as ships got larger and the canal faded and the railroads picked up, we became the third largest rail hub in the country, uh, eighth largest city, seventh busiest port in the world. By, by World War II, in 42, I think was our record, we had 257 million bushels of grain pass through this port. We're still one of the flour milling capitals of the world. Mm-hmm. We make yeah. a lot of the Cheerios here, if you like Cheerios. I, well, I saw the plant, yeah. It's not <laughs> Cheerios and right. Cocoa Puffs. It's right. one of the best smelling waterfronts in the uh-huh, world. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, the plant, the Cheerios plant is right near here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by the way, a lot of the modern boat traffic, of course, is pleasure craft and tour boats and booze cruises. and it's a, <laughs> You name it. And people might be able to hear that in the background. There's some traffic out here. Uh, we're out here in the... uh, So we're on Coast Guard property here, just to clarify this. Yes, the 1833 is still on a Coast Guard base. There's a security fence running right down the middle of the point. We're the public side, and we lease this from the Coast Guard. Yeah, and you have several other sort of modular uh, movable buildings on the on the property yes yeah, so we, we're in here I can't I don't feel morally right about ranging raising the six million dollars as it would take for a major building until we actually own the property right but you know the Coast Guard's been very good about it. there are two buildings out by the lighthouse that they're going to be turning over to us mm-hmm. um, as they get they're in a five phase base recon- reconstruction program and uh, when they finish this current phase uh, two buildings out by the lighthouse one that's close to the lighthouse it's an aids to navigation building and an engineering building that actually was built by the u.s lighthouse service as the admin building for the 10th lighthouse depot okay probably the ugliest building on the waterfront but it's got some history chops yeah we'll use it (laughs) yeah good good glad to hear it so just to change the subject a little bit, one, one of the things I, I read about uh, in the reading the history of this place is that there was an interesting, notable shipwreck in 1821. 1821 was the wreck of the Walk in the Water, which was kind of a, a name Indians gave this walking beam steamboat. Uh-huh. It was the first steamboat on the upper Great Lakes, upper being everything upriver side of the Niagara Falls, okay. so every lake except Lake Ontario. Right. And uh, it ran successfully for a couple of seasons, but in 1821 it headed out into what turned into a strong gale. Mm-hmm. And he had to turn back, Captain Job Fish, great name for a captain. Yeah. Um, turned back and uh, tried to hold it off the beach, but couldn't. So it came, it came aground, everybody waded ashore in the storm. Yeah. And they were relatively close to the 1818 lighthouse. 
So the keeper, John Scats, welcomed them in. They warmed themselves by the fireside until the next day when the storm subsided and they could get into the village itself. Mm -hmm. To jump ahead, why was the light discontinued in 1914? Harbor expansion, basically. The story Mm -hmm. of Buffalo Harbor is that 1825 spurred this need for shipping and, and they would create a harbor. And then there were stories about the inner harbor, which is basically the Buffalo River, which is a deepened and widened creek. Yeah. You could walk from shore to shore across boats, boat decks. Um, it was that congested. Yeah. And, the, and the federal government knew the importance of it and kept recommending harbor expansion. So every time they expanded the harbor, they had to put a new lighthouse at the farthest point of it. Right. So there are actually four main Buffalo lights. Yeah. The 1818 was in there for 20 years and it's gone. Yeah. Uh, my 1833 tower, yeah. which was discontinued in 1914 after they built a new breakwater. They, well, the breakwater light station was built in 1872 mm-hmm. on one of the breakwaters, which we looked at today, at least the site. And that became the main light when this one was discontinued mm-hmm. because it was farther out in the lake and more useful for navigation. Right. And then when that was hit by a freighter in 1958 and had to be destroyed, yeah. A new breakwater was built even farther out, the western breakwater, and the Corps decided that would be a good place for the modern lighthouse, 1961, you know, pencil-type tower with yeah. an arrow beacon on top. Yeah, so it's progress, I guess. I guess. And then there's there's other minor lights around the, the harbor well, as well. Well, the South Buffalo Light marks the south entrance to the harbor near yeah. the Bethlehem Steel Complex, the former Bethlehem Steel Complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was Ordox basically down there. And then there were what are all always been fondly referred to as the bottle lights, uh, yep. which are bottle-shaped structures. That There were two of them. They were twins. They were installed in 1903, the same time the South Buffalo Lighthouse was built. And they marked the opposite sides of the river entrance or the harbor entrances from the 1833 tower and the... South Buffalo Lighthouse. And then farther out, there's Horseshoe Reef Light, which is now about to fall into the Niagara River uh, because of storm damage over the last two years. That was abandoned in the 1920s when the city put up a water intake very close to it, Mm -hmm. and a navigational beacon was put on top of that, tended for a couple years, and then automated. So the light became obsolete and... um, I don't think that the keepers were sorry to see it go because it was probably one of the worst stations in the Great Lakes. It's yeah. on a very shallow reef, yeah. so you can only get boats out there when it's dead calm mm-hmm. so they could see the lights of the city, but right. they couldn't reach them for well beyond their scheduled relief. Uh, Horseshoe Reef Light, I was just reading the history of it, and I, I, it was fairly s- small quarters there. I, I was uh, under the impression that they lived on shore. and and maybe stayed out there when they needed to, or what was their period when they, they lived out they there? They lived out there for small periods, short periods of time, Yeah, and then got relieved. And yeah. It was, you know, the people would row out and change yeah. shifts. Okay, that to be pretty pretty awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what happened in the 1950s with the with the main, the, the 1833 lighthouse here? I understand it was nearly destroyed, nearly demolished at that well, time. Well, when the, when the freighter hit the breakwater light station and yeah. damaged it, the Corps decided it needed, it was because the freighter had a hard time making the turn. Right. Uh, freighters have gotten bigger and bigger through time. They're now up to 1,100 feet. Yeah. Back in the day, it was a 600, 700 foot more maneuverable vessel. But the bigger they got, the harder they got to turn. 
So when that happened, they decided they needed to reconfigure the north entrance to make it easier. And as part, the main part of that was cutting a hole in the long breakwater mm-hmm. for a new entrance. But also they wanted to shave off the tip of what we call Lighthouse Point now. Okay. And that would have inquired, required demolishing the lighthouse. Okay. There was a citizen outcry. So they raised the grand sum of $7,000 mm-hmm. and did a, a quick restoration. I thank them for it because it was before historic preservation standards. Yeah. So they installed a handrail, which was never in there before. Oh. And I am grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Well, now <laughs> so, it's historic. So now it's historic and, uh, and I can benefit from it. Yeah. Funny preservation story, though. That, that thing was in. We, we installed some electrical lines in because we, our light is electric. Yeah. That tower was never electrified. But we wanted to hide them, so we hid them in the wall and under a coat of plaster. And there came a time about 10, 12 years ago when people were getting shocked by touching that handrail. And like they're, it's like eight feet distance from the conduits. Hmm. So we couldn't figure it out. And after a long period of trial and error investigation, yeah. a tiny stream of rust from one of the conduits had contacted one of the brackets of the handrail, oh. and it was enough to put an electrical shock into the handrail. Oh, wow. It's one of those preservation things that drives you nuts for years until you figure it out. Right. <laughs> well, I'm glad you figured it out. Jeez, you don't need to shock uh, people touring your lighthouse. <laughs> you need to amaze them, not shock yes, them. Yes, right. Um, so uh, this lighthouse, the 1833 Buffalo Main Light here, had a third-order Fresnel lens. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about what's up there now in a moment. But do we know what happened to the original? Well, the original f- fixed lens from 1857 yeah. was like most Fresnel lenses, was movable equipment. Yeah. So when they replaced it with a, with a revolving lens, a flashing lens, in 1905, yeah. it disappeared somewhere into the system. Yeah. And in, Many of those records were lost in the Treasury fire, mm-hmm. so we have no idea where it went. Yeah. Somewhere out there, there's a third-order fixed lens that probably saw served. Well, maybe. It maybe, still exists. Yeah. yeah. We started doing that for no lens inventory. I was absolutely shocked at how many we found. I didn't think there would be that many survivors. Yeah, I've just been looking at that lately. You you, and then uh, Chet Kaiser getting involved. Have done yeah, great that work. actually started in a U.S. Lighthouse Society tour. Tom Tag was involved Wayne, in that too, wasn't he? Eventually he was. Wayne Wheeler and I were following the tour bus and talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and somehow I ended up doing a lens inventory. <laughs> Wayne could be persuasive. Yeah. Well, it's a great, it's a great thing. It's a great resource. And, uh, I yeah, I, had, I mobilized some of the people from the Buffalo Lighthouse Association. We sent out paper forms back mm-hmm. then. Yeah. Archaic types that we are. Yeah. And Tom, Tom eventually took it over and did many of the updates. Yeah. But Chad worked on it quite a bit. Chad too, has I worked think. on it too. I think yeah. when we did the first one, we had some 600 some lenses and yeah. I was stunned yeah. that yeah. There, there are many out there. Yeah. For people who don't know what we're talking about, um, there is an inventory of classical Fresnel lenses still in existence, both in lighthouses and uh, in museums or wherever they may be. Small historical societies, wherever. Some private Um, collections, private homes. And this inventory is on the U.S. Lighthouse Society website. Uh, I'm not sure off the top of my head without looking at the website in front of me, the best route into that. But if people have trouble finding it, there's a search box right on the front page, uslhs.org. They can put in Fresnel inventory. Yeah, it's under the resources page, but... uh, 
Yeah. It's some, we're we're going to be putting a significant amount of money into that website to next re- year revamping it to make it easier to navigate yeah yeah there's so much in there that's the yeah problem. that's the problem <laughs> it's got to be a beast yeah. we're somewhere past four terabytes four and a half terabytes uh-huh. of information is that even counting the research catalog which is that really, is yeah it's not all of it's publicly out there yet we're rolling it out as fast as we yeah. can but it's right so well, the research catalog is always growing too mm-hmm. so i'm involved with that podcast and everything else is everything's being added. Yeah, Jeremy, you time. do so much for this society and we're just so pleased to have well, you I'm on as historian. So pleased to be involved, really. It's uh, as I keep telling people I I'm uh, I've reached retirement age and I found the job of a lifetime, my dream job. There you go. Yeah. So you're not gonna get rid of me anytime soon. <laughs> That's good so, to hear. Yeah. So now there's a uh, replica lens in this lighthouse. Replica fixed third order. Yeah. And uh we're actually thinking about doing a tribute to the 1818 Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a concept model at the other end of the table. And putting that on its original site. We don't want to make it look like a lighthouse, but we will mm-hmm. do a tribute to it. Okay. A lighthouse-like tribute. We had a fourth order up there that came out of the South, South Buffalo Lighthouse. Okay. And I was getting uneasy at the condition of it. This was the bivalve lens? It's a bivalve. Yeah, a a large today. fourth order. Yeah. Um, it's in a... In a uh, protected display now. You know, we did a $40,000 conservation of that Jim Woodward and Jim Dunlap. Yeah, we saw that today yeah. with the friends I'm traveling with. Uh, yeah. And uh, that's at the, uh, what's it called? The Heritage, the... Um, Heritage Center. Heritage yeah. Center. Heritage Dis- Discovery Center. Yeah, yeah. Largely railroad oriented, but we're in there. Yeah. <laughs> Until a, we get right, a place Right, right. Yeah, it's a beautiful lens. Yeah. So we decided that since we had an empty lantern room again, we mm-hmm. needed to fill it and... Uh, Dan Spinella built us, I think, his first third order. He had done some all the smaller mm-hmm. ones up till then. Yeah. So we were his first third. First third. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. I understand. I don't think he's done a first yet, but I think he's done everything else now. Has mm-hmm. he done a second? I think, or maybe he Yeah, hasn't. he's done all the third orders now. Sec, but second. I'm not sure. No, I don't think he's, he's done, done a second. first or second yet. He, yeah, I that's a pretty him. daunting size sure is, for yeah. acrylic prisms. Yeah, if anybody saw the movie The Lighthouse, he created the uh, third order lens that was used in that, which was, you would never know that it wasn't a, a, a historic yeah, lens. Exactly. Yeah. The light here, again, was inactive for many years. Uh, is it actually, is it considered an official aid to navigation? What is this as a private aid to navigation? No, I mean, the Coast Guard is slowly working through making it a mm-hmm. private aid to navigation on the charts, but it's still listed on charts as abandoned lighthouse. Okay. So it's there as a day mark. Yeah. And we light it cosmetically. Yeah. So it's got a 40-watt LED equivalent yeah. bulb in there. Yeah. And uh, instead of a 1,000 watts, we're really got mm-hmm. 4% power, brilliance, whatever. Yeah. Keepers at less than 4% brilliance, but uh-huh. that's because of age. Yeah. <laughs> we all get a little less brilliant as we <laughs> yes, age. Indeed. But, but it's, it's nice that it has a light. That's, that's important. So is the lighthouse open for tours these days? Uh, we're getting open again. We were shut down for two years, first mm-hmm. for the pandemic, and then the second for some extreme storm damage that blew holes in our very narrow walkway out to the light. Mm-hmm. Uh, that got fixed in mid-May. So we're now, we open for Memorial Day, and uh, we're reconstituting our volunteer corps and taking on some part-time paid staff so we can get open again on regular hours. And when we do that, we try to have the tower open at least one day a weekend. Yeah, good. And uh, let's move on and talk a little bit, of, just a, a bit about the South Buffalo Light Station, which we just traveled to by 
by boat, uh, you and me and a few friends just a little while ago. Uh, that is actually owned by the Buffalo Lighthouse Association? It is. That was transferred through the uh, National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just called it the South Buffalo Light Station. What is what is the, the please correct well, me? Well, Buffalo Harbor South, si- South Entrance South Side Light, mm-hmm. which is too much of a mouthful. So we all just call it South Buffalo Light. The lighthouse itself is 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 interesting and attractive, but I, what makes that site special is this this fog signal building. Tell tell me about that. It's well, it's it's a wreck now, but yeah. it will be. I, we have interpretive panels ready to go in there. That building is actually more historic than the lighthouse itself mm-hmm. because it was the fog signal testing station for the Great Lakes. Yeah, actually, the only American maker of foghorns, and it was only for a brief time. Was in downtown Buffalo. Okay. Bought out the patents from the Toronto firm that was making them. But they tested all of them there. It yeah. was the Lighthouse Services test bed. And also the station, which is on a large concrete crib attached to a breakwater, mm-hmm. uh, was the site of the first radio station in the Great Lakes, a Marconi transmitter, spark gap transmitter tower. Mm-hmm. So we still have amateur radio people salivating at the idea of doing a commemorative station out there. They've done it once or twice temporarily, but we can give them permanent eventually. And the first radio beacon on the Great Lakes was on that station. Mm-hmm. So the, the building itself, the fog signal station, is attached to the lighthouse by a short walkway, a vestibule type thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has an outhouse that hangs out over the harbor, one-seater. And it had the mechanisms for the fog signal inside. It has a curved vault roof with an 11-foot reflector, a little parabolic dish yeah, yeah. with Tim tr- twin trumpets on the roof. Yeah. You know, hopefully we'll someday be able to use the blueprints to replicate that. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. So it's a it's a very historic structure. It's been battered by storms in the last couple of years. Yeah. That, that whole preservation project is, uh, well, if I adjust for inflation, it's now probably past $1 million, mm-hmm. and we're about halfway there. Yeah. Well, I easily believe it could cost that much, but it's a striking location, and that that uh, that reflector, that sound reflector with the the dual horns you described, is the the view of, of that sort of in the foreground at the lighthouse behind it. I think is one of the most unique. Uh, it is kind of unique, and we use that as a viewing platform. Or it's been used as a movie set, mm-hmm. but it's also we used it as a viewing platform. The, the Lighthouse Association brought in a major tall ships festival in 2019 to the yeah. harbor mm-hmm. and a dozen very large sailing ships yeah. and i sailed them in through the, uh, the parade of sail route i put through that gap and up the harbor and around this lighthouse mm-hmm. and into the inner harbor so we had a viewing platform out there and some really neat pictures of I'll bet. sailing ships in the background of that thing yeah yeah well, i was i was just thrilled to get out there today are there any plans i know there's a lot more restoration to be done but there are any plans for tours, maybe possibly even before restoration is completed? Yes, we do want to do tours while the restoration is going on mm-hmm. because I think people find that sort of thing very interesting. I think so too. And I think we're pretty much at the stage where we can do that safely. Mm-hmm. We're working on some docking arrangements that are a little safer than the ones we have now. Mm-hmm. But we'll probably do a few tours this year Yeah, and then hopefully get weekend tours going next year and mm-hmm. then see where it goes from there. So you mentioned the, the bottle lights as they're popularly known, including uh, there's the one is on the site here, right near the... Right near the 1833 Tower. Yeah, and the other one was moved to Dunkirk. Dunkirk Lighthouse. It's near their entrance gate. I'm sure not many people realize that those are 
lighthouses <laughs> when they spun. Yeah, the they're like structures, technically not a lighthouse because yeah, nobody like lived lights. in them. They're navigational yeah, lights, maybe. Yeah, they had a, a a windlass and and, and operational. You know, the keeper would row out and winch down the lamp, trim the lamp, mm-hmm. send it back up into the mm-hmm. the optic plane, and then row back home. Yeah. So it's they were tended, but they yeah. were not lived. They in. were navigational aids. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but they're they're fascinating. There's the and we had a light vessel, uh, light vessel eighty two. Uh huh. Was replaced eventually by a Canada's Point Abenal lighthouse. Mm-hmm. But the Buffalo Lightship was 15 miles out, and it was uh, one of two lightships lost in storms in the history of that service. It was lost in the Great Lakes Hurricane, which is actually a superstorm of 1913, mm-hmm. the Black Friday storm. Okay. And a dozen ships went down on Lake Michigan, two went down on Lake Erie, mm-hmm. and it was lost with all hands. Only one body was ever recovered. The ship was raised and eventually used as a relief lightship for a while, and then ended its days is a VFW post in Boston Harbor and then was scrapped in World War II for the metal. I just learned something uh, that a lot of that was uh, new to me, but I learned that it's Point Abano and not Abino. I never knew how to pronounce that. <laughs> Abano, named after a French Abino. priest. Abino. A-B-I-N-O, right? Yeah. But pronounce it Abano. Abano. Well, that, who would who would have thunk it? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Great Lakes place names can be a little tricky. I've learned that. haven't been in Michigan recently, too, mm. for, for a week, uh, that's for sure. But that's true in New England, too, wherever mm. I'm from. You've certainly been involved on a national level in lighthouse uh, preservation for, for many years. You, uh, for some time, were the president of the American Lighthouse Coordinating Committee. Mm-hmm. You helped develop the guidelines uh, for the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act of 2000. Uh, and that is, you know, landmark legislation. It's had such an uh, important role in, in uh, modern lighthouse preservation. 20 years, more than 20 years after it uh, was instituted, do you feel that program has been a success? I do. I mean, we're well past 100 lighthouses transferred. Mm-hmm. And they've been largely success stories. Uh, the way the system works, it, it, if if the lighthouse drops out the bottom of the funnel, if nobody bids on it or applies for it, yeah, because it's not a money thing, um, they go up for public auction. Yeah, and those generally tend to be the offshore lights, which are really expensive and difficult to do. And there have been a couple that have not been successes, but there have been a couple that have been really surprisingly good successes. I agree. And a lot of what we're talking about are light structures, lighthouses that would have been lost mm-hmm. or would have just continued to decay until they collapsed right. if this, this system hadn't been developed. Yeah. I mean, just to refresh people's memories, the, the intent of the NHLPA is to short-circuit the norm, normal government disposition of property you know, system. Uh, so we had battles in the early years of people putting in a lot of time, effort, and wealth into restoring a lighthouse and then having a local government or somebody come along and uh, hire on the priority list and say, we want that for a halfway house or we want that for clubhouses for this, that, and the other thing. And they weren't after the tower so much as they were after the keeper's quarters. Yeah. And and that was not the best and, and highest use of the structures. And it also didn't... I mean, they weren't putting money into upkeep of towers and that. So there were a couple of fights even after the NHLPA was passed. Sure. Which the ALCC, which later became the American Lighthouse Council, 
played an active role in. But I think without that legislation that short-circuited it, and it, it tasks the the owner, and it's always usually the Coast Guard, although we still haven't had a lot of success in convincing the Bureau of Land Management and and the Defense Department and fisheries and others that they are covered by this law. It helps that process along. They, the Coast Guard will turn it over to the GSA. GSA will advertise it and then task the National Park Service Maritime Program yeah. with finding the best possible historic steward. Yeah. So the application's... You know, having developed the guidelines, I had to go through that for South Buffalo. Well, I spent a year Be careful that. what you wish for. Yeah. Um, they, our application is about two inches thick. I know. And it's very detailed. <laughs> and you've been through the experience, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's worked out well in, in doing safeguards. And you have to report back to uh, the GSA every year mm-hmm. uh, with yeah. progress until you can, you can request an exemption after you've demonstrated I've refused to do that, and we've talked about that with GSA. I refuse to do that with South Buffalo because I want them looking over my shoulder. I want somebody telling me, you can't do that if it's mm-hmm. the wrong thing. Right. So you got the SHPO involved, the State Historic Preservation Officer, yeah. and you have, uh, in our case, GSA with annual reports that get reviewed. Well, I, I agree with everything you said about that. Uh, so we could maybe sometime we do a whole... Uh, Podcast or, or bureaucracy that would be a winner. Well, oh boy, I don't know. I think I don't think many people would want to want to listen to that, but maybe. So let's uh, talk about the U.S. Lighthouse Society. You've been president now for a couple of years. Yeah, I came on board. I can't remember early two thousands mm-hmm. to the board, and then I yeah. became the secretary of the board for a long time. Right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, when Wayne decided he wanted to retire, he was founder. Wayne, Wayne Wheeler. Founder. Wayne Wheeler, founder of the. Society and president for 35 years. Yeah, he uh, he decided he he wanted to retire and still stay active in the research end of things. Yeah, and uh, I succeeded him. Was it two and a half, three years ago? Yeah, now? So you're, only years. The, you're the second president of second the U.S. Pre- Lighthouse Society. And Wayne was born in Buffalo, so we have now an unstated rule that every president of the U.S. Lighthouse Society has to come from Buffalo. Okay, just keep that in the back of your mind. Well, that rules me out. <laughs> wow. I didn't realize that. I, if yeah. I knew that Wayne was... He lived here for about six months, and then he moved okay. to Mid-State. Uh, what are your feelings, and this is a big open-ended question. You can take it anywhere you want, but what are your feelings about what the U.S. Lighthouse Society has accomplished in its history and where it's headed at this point? Uh, it has it has really boosted lighthouses, lighthouse preservation, the movement, uh, there have been other organizations that have done the same. U.S. Lighthouse Society seems to have the most lasting impact and a lasting track. It has brought knowledge of lighthouses to the general public uh, in, a, in a much more systematic way than, than in the past. There have always been communities that loved their lighthouses. But the idea of this big network of lighthouses kind of was lost when the Lighthouse Service disbanded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it disappeared into the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard started automating, and lighthouses started being more and more vulnerable. And uh, that's when the national preservation movement started. Yeah. Um, it has developed an amazing amount of historical reference material over the years. Our printed library has been transferred four, maybe four years ago now. We transferred it to the Mariner's Museum. Yeah. 
uh, where the, the librarians there are doing an excellent job on conservation. This is Newport and that's News. listed as a separate part of their library. Yeah, Newport News. Newport uh, News, that area. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have developed an amazing website to the point where it's hard to handle it now and we have to go back and re-engineer it to yeah. the architecture over again. But we've incorporated National Archive stuff. Where the goal is to become the one-stop research yeah. thing. And it's an amazing photo, digital photo library, a document library, uh, digitized everything. Uh, things keep getting added to it. Candace Clifford, our first uh, historian, donated all of her stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. She was like the National Archives researcher yeah. for Lighthouses. She was. It's an amazing resource. And that will continue. The, the pillars are education, preservation, yeah. and, and you know just history and heritage. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we've just come through another strategic planning process uh, through the pandemic. And yeah. my hope as president in my term is to integrate the lighthouse preservation community much more solidly into the national maritime heritage community, mm-hmm. which is large and thriving. Yeah. And we've done that over the years through running lighthouse tracks at major national conferences and stuff, mm-hmm. but much more building of bridges now and much more cooperative efforts and partnerships. Yeah. And we are trying to reach out much more to the younger generation because kind of, a lot of us are painfully aware that time is passing and uh, yeah. we need to raise up a new generation of lighthouse keepers. Absolutely. When we had the pandemic started uh, I had just taken over the lighthouse. Time is everything. They had taken over the society. Um, so the pandemic hits and of course our finances go on this roller coaster ride and you know yeah. everybody's isolated. But we looked around and saw that individual lighthouse groups were hurting big time. So we have we had started the first in-house national level preservation grant program for lighthouses. And we were giving out preservation grants. Yeah. I mean, there are regional groups that do that, but we had the only national one. And we're very proud of that. Uh, we're in another round of that right now. But when the pandemic hit, groups were hurting. So I decided that we needed to do something different. Yeah. And what we did is we took that fund and we stopped doing the bricks and mortar grants for two years. But we gave out emergency $1,000 operating grants. Yeah. Just tell us you need it type thing. And we did more than 50 of those. Mm-hmm. And from what the feedback we get from the Lighthouse groups is that was really mm-hmm. helpful in protective gear and keeping the lights on and the insurance paid and whatever they needed to do to keep the doors open. And the, the theory of that was you can't save the lighthouses if you don't save the groups that are saving the lighthouses. That's for sure. And, you know, no national group can do all this. We have four or five lighthouses that we manage ourselves. Yeah. And so we know the territory. We know how hard it is. But you can't help every lighthouse out of a national group. They're all local efforts. They're all community-based. And they have to be yeah. because... You have to keep your eye on the light and and keep working it. They're, they need constant attention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll see photographs of remote lighthouses that, are, that clapboards are falling off and this. And it just kind of breaks my heart. But, but you know, you, you do what you can. Yeah. You yeah. fight the fights that are right in front of you and hope that you live to fight another fight down the line. Oh, yeah. And that's what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Be more inclusive, more diverse, more open. Yeah. 
and we've changed you know from thinking from telling lighthouse groups what we can do for them to asking them what do you want us to do for you what how can we help yeah what do you need from a national level group yeah. is it the voice in congress is it the voice in you know trying to gain funding is it the resource center with all the heritage and the history gathered in one place that you can easily access. Mm -hmm. uh, what is it? Tell us. We don't want to tell you. Yeah. You tell us. Well, the U.S. Lighthouse Society has accomplished so much, but I think what you're talking about right there is as important as anything. And I'm seeing a lot of that since I've been involved. And, uh, you know, bringing the community, the lighthouse community together and finding out what their needs are. That's uh, the goal. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So I've got another really big question for you, maybe even broader than the one I just asked you. Uh, in our world today, you know, I don't need to tell you or anybody else that there's uh, so many issues facing our country and the, the world. Are lighthouses still relevant and worthy of preservation in this crazy world today? Absolutely. And, and this is a kind of question that every lighthouse groups get, groups get asked, mm -hmm. uh, especially by funding agencies. One of the first things that I did, one of the first grants I ever went after in the 1980s with a local foundation had three trustees, mm -hmm. a lawyer, a minister, and an accountant. And the accountant during our interview said, well, look, we just got the last group in was doing something to help the blind. And you come in and you want us to help a, an old building. Why should we do that? And I said to him, naive as I was at the time, I said, look, if it comes down to that, if it comes down to helping someone who needs desperate help in their own life journey, right. do that. Don't give me the money. Right. And the minister tore me a new one. He said, don't you ever say that again. Lighthouses and structures like that are part of the cultural soul of this community. So we will always have the poor with us, but we won't always have the cultural icons that are our touchstones to the past. And I learned my lesson there. It was really a seminal moment for me. But that's that's the truth. I mean, if we don't have these bridges to the past, yeah. we don't know where we've been and what our ancestors accomplished with what they had to work with. Then how do we chart our course into the future mm -hmm. and and figure out who we are as a people, what we can do as a people, as a community, Lighthouses are icons. They're symbols. They're symbols of steadfast endurance. They're symbols of hope. Lighthouses simultaneously bid people go out and explore and bid them farewell, and they welcome them back to Safe Harbor at the same time. I'm convinced sometime in the far future there are going to be beacons out in space that do the same thing, send our spacefarers out and welcome them back. That's a function. And if there is magic any place on this planet, it's at the boundary, the edges, the place where water meets land. That's where the magic is. And that's where lighthouses stand. They're part of their magic. They're a visual touchstone for people who visit. And I think anybody who comes to visit a lighthouse, even if they don't think that through, they know that inside. They feel that. For them, that's a symbol of hope. Yeah. And what do we need more right now than symbols of hope? So do lighthouses serve a purpose? You bet they do. <laughs> that may be the most eloquent uh, explanation of the importance of lighthouses I've ever heard. I just made it up as I was going on. <laughs> well, 
it, it couldn't be it couldn't be more perfect. So I, I love hearing everything you just said. So one final question, okay, for bonus points, and this is another big open-ended question. <laughs> and you've you've got a number of uh, you know years to, to bring into this, but what have you enjoyed most about your work in the lighthouse preservation field? The people, mm-hmm. the people I meet, people like you, and everybody else I've met. I have friends all over the country now. You know, I made friends as a journalist, but in much more trying circumstances, and not in. Not trying to row the boat in the same direction that they were. I was just a chronicler when I dealt with most of them. But I've I've enjoyed working with the people that I've I've met in this thing. They're just wonderful people. Yeah. And you know, I, it, I'm just so pleased to be accepted among this group. You know, because I came in knowing nothing about lights. I was a sailor, but I knew nothing beyond the navigational uses of a lighthouse. Right. And everybody I've met has taught me something. And it's just been a wonderful journey, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Mike, this is such a pleasure and so overdue. You know, when I started the podcast, you were um, you know at the top of my list of people I wanted to interview, and it, it took too long. So, <laughs> but I'm glad I'm able to do it in person. I think it makes it more special. Oh yeah, it's more fun talking to someone. Yeah, you know, rather than doing it over the phone or whatever. Yeah, this is this is really special for me to be here to see this place for the first time and. I, you know, we, 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 you and I take part in some of the same Zoom meetings fairly often with the U.S. Lighthouse Society, but, and I believe we met at least a couple of conferences, but quite a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So I probably haven't seen you in person in maybe 15 well, at least years the, or something. The two years of pandemic. <laughs> right. It's been more, a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, great to see you again. Great to spend this time with you today. And you've said some, uh, such important things about the lighthouse preservation field and how important uh, all this is. So, Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you for hosting me here today, too. My pleasure, Jeremy. I've looked forward to this for quite a while. You can read more about the Buffalo Lighthouse Association at buffalolight.org. And, of course, you can read more about the U.S. Lighthouse Society at uslhs.org. Don't forget that donations and memberships help to support this podcast. The interview with Mike Vogel was way overdue, and my first visit to the lighthouses around Buffalo was also way overdue. I visited Niagara Falls around 30 years ago, but didn't make it to the lighthouses near there at that time, so it was a a fun trip. A big thank you to Mike for the interview and for providing a tour for me and my friends, and uh, thanks also to Bill Zimmerman for his help in getting us out to the South Buffalo Light. The Turkish writer Mehmet Murat Ildan once wrote, quote, A good book is a lighthouse. A wise man is a lighthouse. Conscience is a lighthouse. Compassion is a lighthouse. Science is a lighthouse. They all show us the true path. Keep them in your life to remain safe in the rocky and dark waters of life." If you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends and spread the word on social media. To all our regular listeners and to our new ones, thank you so much for listening and keep a good light. Uh